Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, we are featuring guests of the 2022 Morningstar Investment Conference. Mary Ellen Stanek, Joel Fried, and Al Mordecai, winners of Morningstar's 2022 Investing Excellence Award, share their investing insights. David Blanchett and Christine Benz talk about retirement income. Sonia Dreisler and Fong Long dive into the wealth divide. Sarah Bush and Jenny Johnson discuss the future of Franklin Templeton. Let's get started. Here are Mary Ellen Stanek, Joel Fried, and Al Mordecai, winners of Morningstar's 2022 Investing Excellence Awards. So certainly having done this for over four decades, uh, the investment landscape has changed dramatically. There is, being bond investors, there's been this huge proliferation of different types of securities and structures. Uh, certainly the, the use of technology, both in terms of portfolio management, in terms of data. Being a long-term investor used to not be so uncommon but today we really do feel like we're somewhat of an anachronism. And, and I would add to what Joel just said, that we don't view that as a negative. We view that as a positive in terms of how we do business. The more short-term focused people become, we think the greater the opportunity for the few of us that are left to try to assess what this company is gonna look like five to 10 years from now. Great investors, I think, have that passion to, to, to win, but I also think it's with that servant leadership mentality that, you know, there's a higher calling and a higher purpose, and that it's not about the accolades that I'm individually gonna get, but how are we winning for our investors? It's really seeing through their eyes uh, how we're able to deliver on the promise. And we very much, while well, our compliance people wouldn't, wouldn't want me to label it a, a promise, I do and we do take very, very seriously the responsibility we have to our investors and the honor and the privilege to serve them. I think a great investor has to um, be able to outperform over in all different kinds of market cycles. The best investors are people who see the same information and news that everybody else sees, but who understand it in a way that other people don't understand it. There are some real lessons learned that are important every time. One is liquidity. Uh, always, always, always pay attention to liquidity, both in your portfolios in our cases but also the market dynamics and the market structure and um, making sure that we always have liquidity first and foremost should our investors need it and sometimes being more liquid and higher quality we will be one of the places where investors can go for liquidity when other parts of their portfolio are more constrained. So liquidity, number one, two, and three in a crisis environment. Back in the dot-com bubble, you had all these new analysts, new sell-side analysts that had never been through a, a bear market um, reinventing valuation metrics because the old ones didn't work anymore. 
Uh, so it was price per pop, price per eyeball, price per click. None of these things made sense to us. So that's when we decided to, to start selling. But it gets back to that point that it's very lonely and very scary when the market is telling you every day that you're an idiot. Um, but when things change at that inflection point, you can make up the underperformance um, so quickly. Try to find a way to stay very focused on relative value and back that up with the courage to, to act and the courage um, because when, when market environments get um, very challenged and dislocated, often people, it's human talent is, you know, is there's a recency bias. And often people will, will get locked up in, in fear. The professional advice I would give myself if I was starting out today would be patience. Uh, this is such a long-term business. And when you think about firms like PrimeCap or, or the, the firms that we consider our peer group, you're hiring, uh, we're trying to recruit the best and the brightest, people that have only experienced academic success their entire life. And they get into a business where um, you, if you're really good, you're right slightly more than 50%. And people coming into the business that have only experienced ac academic success don't believe that number. And so they, you want to go out and you want to kill it right away. Uh, and um, that's just not the way that business works. Uh, I actually always hope an analyst will experience a difficult time when they first start out because it will um, firmly plant in their mind how difficult this business is. Uh, and. Um, they'll double, double down on the rigor with which they approach it. Because if you start out and you've got a hot group and, and the, the numbers come easily, you can really become complacent and underestimate the challenge in the business. So that's a long-winded way of saying um, patience. I think you have to trust yourself that when you first enter the business, there's a tremendous amount of noise and it can come across as quite intimidating and there's the sell side research reports and there's other buy siders and the types of questions that they're asking companies and it can feel overwhelming. But the truth is that the best investment ideas are going to come from individuals who are seeing things differently than the rest of the world is. And therefore, we feel it quite essential that the analysts take a look at the company, get to know the company, get to know their competitors, and to understand it in ways that other people don't. And sometimes that can be quite lonely. You're gonna feel like you're you're out on a limb because you're seeing something that you, the rest of the world doesn't see. And so I would say you have to trust yourself and your own judgment and your own analytical uh, research. To not be afraid and to work really hard, to have that zest for learning and that curiosity. Um, ask lots of good questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Listen really carefully. 
take the feedback you get from smart people around you and use that and incorporate it. There is no substitute for hard work, doing, you know, going through and being thorough. Um, certainly focus is really important. And, you know, some patience to uh, understand that you go through a learning process, but at the same time to be ready. To be ready because you never know when an opportunity career-wise is gonna come your way. It certainly, in my case, came earlier than I expected. And uh, not to be afraid to, to accept the challenge and the opportunity and go for it. And surround yourself with really great people. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, here are Christine Benz of Morningstar Inc. and David Blanchett, Director of Retirement Research for PGIN. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. So far in 2022, it seems like almost everything that could go wrong for retirees has. We've had a falling stock market, falling bond prices, and rising inflation. Joining me to discuss how retirees should approach this environment is David Blanchett. He's Director of Retirement Research for PGM. David, thank you so much for being here, and also thank you for taking part in the Morningstar Conference this year. Sure thing. So let's start by talking about the current environment. Of course, all retirees are different, but do you have any thoughts about what retirees should bear in mind as they're thinking about the current market environment? Yeah, you know, to your comment, it's it's almost like alarm bells are going off everywhere, right? You've got um, a, a wild stock market, you've got interest rates rising, so you've got bonds losing value, you've got inflation. I think that, that right now the key is just to make sure you have a plan. Um, what worries me about, about um, investors, especially older investors, given some research I've done looking at, for example, 2008 and 2020, is they react um, uh, to these negative market events. And so I'd say that, you know, for those that are watching, um, just be prepared. Obviously, things change. It's hard to know what the future is going to hold. But the last thing you want to do is to see a big inflation spike, a big market drop, and not have a plan or at least an idea of how you'd react to that event. Right. Now, I want to delve into withdrawal rates because a lot of your research has centered on that idea how much retirees can safely take out of their portfolios without prematurely depleting them. Your research, other research has shown that if you can be a little bit variable in your withdrawals and take less during market downturns, that can be really beneficial. Let's just talk about the benefits of doing that. And then I want to get into whether that's possible in an inflationary environment. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the concept of dynamic withdrawals is is incredibly intuitive, right? Um, I think I think the the big disconnect in the industry is that a lot of the tools that that advisors use, that individuals use, assume that someone kind of follows this 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 constant path adjusted for inflation for thirty years, and no one's going to do that, right? I think that 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 a really important question though, when it comes to things like withdrawal rates and everything else, is is what is your level of flexibility? Um, you know, if 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 the markets do drop, um, if something does happen, are you able 
to cut back? And if, if the answer to that question is no, I think it's it's either important to kind of um, readjust where you are if you're taking out too much from your portfolio, or kind of ask yourself if I should allocate more to guaranteed income. Because again, if you don't have uh, that flexibility, um, it effectively increases the cost of retirement. Okay, so you referenced guaranteed income, and that's obviously a huge topic unto itself. But I think a, a risk is potentially inflation and how that affects products that deliver that guaranteed income stream. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, most Americans can get all the guaranteed income they need from delaying claiming Social Security. And as everyone knows, Social Security is explicitly linked to change in inflation. It uses uses the CPIW. It, it, some could argue it's not, it's not perfect, but I think that, that that's actually especially for, for individuals who are concerned about just, just the best place to think about guaranteed income. Now, um, it is certainly an issue though. Um, there are no other guaranteed lifetime income products that have benefits that are explicitly linked to inflation. Um, and some of them you can invest in things that should do well if inflation, for example, goes up. Um, but that could be an issue if you buy um, an immediate annuity that has a fixed payment. Well, if that's just in today's dollars and no future adjustments, that could be worth a lot less than 10 or 15 years if inflation is uh, material. Okay. So I want to talk about rising yields a little bit because that's been, as you mentioned, a, a vexing issue with, with falling bond prices. Short term, certainly there's a dislocation that we've been seeing in bond prices, but long term, do you think that there's potentially benefits for retirees if we see yields begin to trend up as, as we have? Yeah, I mean, so first I've been I've been shocked. I mean, if you had told me three months ago we're going to have ten-year governments around three percent, I, I would I would have said you were nuts. Um, but I, and so I think the question is 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 no one knows where obviously things are headed. They could they could keep going up. There's indications they may. And you know, collectively higher yields are good for more conservative investors, right? There was um, you know a time when the ten-year was less than one percent. Uh, that is not going to help you have a portfolio that, that beats inflation if you're investing conservatively. That being said, um, as interest rates rise, it's going to negatively affect the performance of a portfolio of bonds, especially long duration bonds. So I think in the long term, um, higher yields are going to be better for investors, but they're obviously worse for borrowers, right? So you see, you see 30 year mortgages now at over 5%. So I think that, that you, know, you know, with interest rates, there's clear winners and losers um, older investors who tend to invest more in bonds are obviously winners, um, the higher interest rates go. Okay. We've talked about people who are in retirement and the implications of the current environment for their planning. I want to talk a little bit about people who are in that pre-retirement mode, perhaps two or five or maybe even 10 years from retirement. They're looking at this environment. Uh, many of them are surely spooked by what they're seeing. Can you offer any guidance for people who are at that life stage who haven't yet begun to draw from their portfolios? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no silver bullet that's going to kind of fix someone's retirement strategy. But to the extent that an individual can delay retirement, um, it's phenomenal for any kind of retirement outcome, right? You have um, an extra year to save, another year for markets to grow, one less year to fund, another year to delay claiming Social Security. So um, there's there's significant economic benefits to delaying claiming Social Security and I mean delaying claiming retirement. And and I think why that's important right now is just the markets have been on fire. Um, uh, you know, for the last decade or so, we've got the possibility of, of rising rates, there's high inflation. Um, there's never necessarily a, a time to retire that, that's, that's obviously great, but, but you, you know, if you have flexibility 
to, to put it off. I would say, you know, do it if you can, but also kind of, again, start thinking about, well, like, what is my strategy? What am I going to do? How am I going to fund delay claiming retirement? How am I going to invest? Because the last thing you want to do is, is, is get to retirement and not be prepared for um, what you're going to do. Okay, David, it's always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for being here. Sure thing. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Next, Sonia Dreisler and Fong Lung discuss financial literacy and the wealth divide. Hi, my name is Sonia Dreisler. I'm joined today by Fong Lung, and we are here to talk about building generational wealth for all families. Welcome, Fong. Thank you. Thank you. It's so great to talk to you about this important topic. Um, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Well, let's just jump right in. Um, we have likely all heard the term racial wealth gap. What does that mean? Where do we stand and how did we get here? Yeah, so big questions, but it's important to cover because not everybody knows what the racial wealth gap uh, means or what it's referring to. And actually to start us off, I'd like to rephrase that term. I don't really like to use the term racial wealth gap. I'd rather say racial wealth divide. And it's not just something I've you know created or, or stated. It's because when we think about gaps, we think about a, a small distance that we could just jump over. But actually, when we say divide, that points to the real issues. There's, there, there are true barriers, structural, interpersonal, and wealth barriers that exist between the level of wealth that certain communities in the United States have versus other communities. And when I say communities, I'm talking about uh, in terms of gender, race, ethnicity. Um, there are definite wealth divides here. Um, not just in terms of the numbers, but also in terms of the, the opportunities and blocks that are in place for certain communities over others to build or to lose wealth. And so, um, yeah, so, so how did we get here? It's a long history, super long history, um, starting from the founding of this country, land theft, slavery, all the way to um, blocking who can start a business, who has the um, ability to go to school for a fair cost. Um, uh, who is allowed to purchase a home in a certain area. Um, and I'm referring to redlining, for example. Um, we can talk about all of these things, but there's so many resources available online throughout history that so many financial advisors don't learn about in our studies to become financial services professionals. And that's something that happened to me as well. I was actually a teacher in a, in a past career. And then I worked at nonprofits working with people living in public housing before I became a certified financial planner. And in grad school, my K through 12 schooling for my own education uh, before I went to college, even to my CFP studies, I did not learn about this financial history. And I think it's a real shame. I think it's a huge gap in our knowledge. Um, I believe financial literacy must include financial history. And so, um, yeah, there's so many things that apply from history all the way to, to current times. Can I jump in on something you said there? You mentioned... Yeah financial literacy. And in our space, we've seen a really big push for that in recent years. And I'm wondering if you can comment on how that plays in here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think um, I'll, I'll share just a quick anecdote that happens to me often. When people ask me, what do I do for a living? Um, and I share with them, I'm a financial planner, I'm a financial educator. You know, the for many people, their access to financial education is through financial literacy, right? They might've heard that term where they maybe they have attended 
um, a workshop before in their past, or maybe they've read some articles online with financial advice and they say, wow, you know, in, in order to connect with me, they say, wow, you know, financial literacy is so important. And oftentimes I hear we should teach that in schools. We should definitely teach financial literacy in schools. And in the past, I would, um, whenever I'd hear that comment, I, I would, I would get a little annoyed, right? Because what, what I heard then, right? And oftentimes people do use the term financial literacy to say that, <laughs> that poverty wouldn't exist, that we wouldn't have these racial wealth divides or gender wealth divides and people would be more secure and stable if they learned how to manage their money better. Right, like, like all the folks who are living in poverty are, uh, all that's in between them and poverty is somebody coming in and teaching a little financial literacy in yeah. elementary and high school. Exactly, exactly. Right. Budgeting, how to use a credit card, right? How right. to save. And to be sure, financial literacy is important, right? Especially in this day and age, we have to understand how to use these financial products that are around us and, you know, employees benefits and health, in, like, and health insurance and um, just so many things that are required for a secure and stable life in the, New York, in the United States now has, has been privatized, right? So these, these products are important in our lives because we have to understand how to use them effectively and how to not be taken advantage of, right? When, when, when we're confronted with them. At the same time, I think the term financial literacy and the idea of financial education often blocks um, further discussion around structural and contextual issues of why people are living in poverty and also why people are very wealthy because it's two sides of the same coin, right? There, poverty cannot exist without extreme wealth. And, and we're seeing that plow even more, not just in the United States, I know we're focused on the United States today in our discussion, but around the world, right? It's, it's a whole system and they, and they work together. And so, um, so this is why I like to, to, to remind people that financial literacy needs to include financial history. Because if you don't talk and learn about financial history and read about it and, and engage with those, um, that, that history, but also the, the current day stuff that's still happening that stems from that history, um, then we so often will blame ourselves, blame individuals for the state that they're in, rather than looking at the big context of why there are so many barriers in place for people to build wealth and to have financial security. Are there any other, um, any other tools or strategies, learning resources that you want to add? Or if there's something that people could do, they've finished watching this video, they're inspired what to learn, to take next steps, what do you suggest? Yeah, absolutely. So um, two things. One is a book that I recommend every time someone is interested in this topic is The Color of Money by Dr. Mursa Broderon. Fantastic book, just a survey of the history, but also the current day impacts of this history that we're talking about around um, uh, banking and capitalism and how, um, you know, what we're seeing here today, talking about um, really does apply to every, to all, to all Americans, right? And it's impacted all of us. Um, and the second resource that I want to share is um, uh, a, uh, a guide to transformative investments um, and how to evaluate them um, from a group called Resource Generation, which is this incredible advocacy group of um, young people with wealth who are redistributing and reinvesting it according to their values. And so look up something called the Transformative Investment Principles. Um, that's on their website and free to, to read and, and available to anyone who wants to read it. 
Um, I, I, I'm sending it out to a lot of advisors because it's, uh, it's a really, really concise, really in-depth uh, review of how advisors can change their practices for the better if they want to make structural change with their work. Great. Um, I'll take one, I'll just ask one more question. Yeah. Um, how about not specifically in, you know, um, learning or advising clients one on one, but are there changes inside of a practice, say, um, referrals, staffing, are there other changes, um, ways of communication? Are there other things that advisors should at least have in mind as they're um, as they're considering all of this new knowledge and trying to incorporate it in a way that serves um, their existing clients and hopefully a wider um, a wider group of prospects and future clients. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I would recommend is for um, for firms that provide or uh, seek professional education and ongoing continuing education for their employees to include topics on financial history and, and racial wealth divide. Uh, there, there's, there's, so, there's so many materials out there to, to bring to your firm. Um, and then another thing uh, is to, to really look at your hiring practices. And this goes to any, to any employer. Um, to look at your hiring practices to see, are you, are you recruiting and seeking out the best talent for your firm, right? Or, are you paying attention too closely to things like, um, you know, uh, personal background, right? Th things, things that are code for, um, for level of education, for, um, for internships that they might've done in the past, experiences they might've done in the past. Because in my experience, personally as a person of color, but also in a hiring role previously um, and where I was working before, so often as a hiring manager, we can look at false markers of, um, of competence when we look at uh, just really superficial things and not actually assess the person in front of us and be ready to train them, right? Because we know in our field, it is male dominated and is dominated by, uh, by white professionals, right? The lack of people of color in, color in financial services um, is an issue that we can all tackle in different ways, um, and hiring and recruitment is one of them. I could talk about that topic all day. <laughs> That's a topic for another video, perhaps. Uh, I really appreciate you being here with me today. Lastly, here is Sarah Bush from Morningstar Research Services with Jenny Johnson, CEO of Franklin Templeton. Hi, I'm here today with Jenny Johnson, CEO of Franklin Templeton. She's joining us at the Morningstar Investment Conference this year. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation, Jenny. That's great to be here. Great. So I wanted to start off, you know, you got off to a really exciting start in your first few months um, as CEO. You stepped into that role and shortly thereafter, uh, you announced the acquisition of Leg Mason, which, you know, even on the scale of things Franklin has done before was pretty amazing. So maybe you could start off by talking a little bit about how that integration is going and if there's anything that you learned through that process. 
Sure. Well, so Franklin this year is celebrating our 75 years. And, you know, the reason you can make it 75 years is because you build a resilient business um, that can weather, you know, whatever storms are thrown at you. And the, the primary reasons for the Lake Mason acquisition, which really doubled the size of the firm, we're now 1.5 trillion asset manager, was that it gave us capabilities that we didn't have. I mean, it was over a couple of years that we identified we wanted to grow in alternatives. We wanted to grow in big categories like core, core plus fixed income. And Lake Mason had a couple of those. Clarion Partners, a fabulous real estate manager, and of course, Western Asset, you know, very well known in the core, core plus space. But in addition, we have been 75%, uh, you know, kind of a retail um, asset manager, and they were 75% institutional. And so from a just diversification of clients, it gave us 50-50 with this amazing breadth of capabilities. And then when we look at the future of asset management, you know, just like financial advisors no longer just manage people's money, they expect them to provide the services that historically only went to ultra high net worth people. Uh, we can invest in things like solutions, multi-asset products, um, technology capabilities to provide additional services to clients. Great, thank you, Jenny. Um, so as you've built your career at Franklin, you've spent time in a lot of different parts of the business, you know, running consumer lending, time in tech and operations. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what all those experiences bring to the table and kind of how they shape how you're approaching your new role. Yeah, you know, it's funny, we, we never fully appreciate when we're doing something, how it's gonna be relevant to us later in life. I always think of, you know, Steve Jobs who took his first calligraphy class and then ultimately completely changed the way uh, we have fonts in, um, it, it, you know, on, on, in word processing systems. So, you know, for me, I have to tell you, the consumer lending was amazing experience to understand kind of fixed income investing, to understand today using data, data analytics. I also ran a credit card department. You know, the, the amount of data that banks use for consumer lending is phenomenal. And so bringing that to the investment capability was a great learning. And then, of course, running technology, it was the advice of uh, someone that said any executive of the future has to be really good at technology. And I think that was great advice to me. So I've always been very comfortable uh, with, with new technology. And I think technology is dramatically impacting our business uh, in a good way. We're going to be able to customize solutions to clients in a much, much greater um, greater way, whether it's tax efficiency or you know ESG kind of overlay uh, and, and, and deliver things like, you know, direct indexing or SMA type portfolios. Great. Okay. I want to shift again a little bit, but also to talk about the future of Franklin. So active management has been a hard place to be, especially in equity. Franklin had had sort of several years of outflows when you came in, starting to turn the picture there. Um, you've talked a little bit about how you think the next decade is going to look different for active management. So maybe you could talk about what, what's likely to change there. <laughs> you know, I've been using this analogy for probably the last five or six years, which was, you know, if somebody asked you to drive a car from point A to point B and do it as cheaply as you can, you'd go out and buy a used car with no safety features as long as the drive was, you know, a well-paved straight road. But the reality of financial, um, you know, people's financial journey, it's never a straight, well-paved road. Uh, what was happening over the last decade where governments were pumping money into the system, rates were kept artificially low, is the investing environment was like a, a well-paved road, all stocks went up. 
but you know, as, as the journey of life is, sometimes you take the car into the mountains and you get hit by a snowstorm and, oh, guess what? That's what we're experiencing right now with all of these some seen and some unseen circumstances that are impacting the market. Uh, we see you know, the Dow and, and S&P uh, uh, having declined half as much as, as the NASDAQ. Uh, and you know, if you look at the last decade, it was all about the NASDAQ. Volatile times are when active managers shine. What makes it really hard for an active manager is times where everything goes up uh, you know, and is correlated, and we are seeing real volatility. So I think, and I, I don't think these things go away quickly. Uh, I was at a, a conference last week where kind of the, the consensus was probably the best scenario in the Ukraine is a frozen war where it's neither a win or a loss for Russia. Uh, and that means it drags on for a long time, impacts energy, impacts food. Uh, you know, China's lockdown is impacting supply chains. People are going to re, you know, nearshore their supply chains, and that's going to make different investment opportunities. So I feel like in my in my analogy, we've hit that kind of mountainous storm, uh, and and this is why you want to have good risk adjusted approach to any kind of investments. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jenny. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.